0: Thank mm-hmm. you. To another episode of Lay Film. My name is Kevin, one of the co-hosts, and my name is Patrick, and I am the other co-host. And thank you for joining us again with our coverage of Twin Peaks season one. In this episode, we'll be discussing episode five, entitled "Cooper's Dreams." And upon uh, my upon this rewatch for me, I. And paying more attention to the ebb and flow of the series so far um, in the previous episode I felt like not not too much stuff happened. it was kind of a more uh, grounded and quieter episode with a few notable things happening but in this episode it was kind of like the the fall of the crashing of the wave again you know building up to that to the big to the big wave that's coming that we could all feel. <laughs> uh how did you feel about this episode, Pat? I think I'm having a
1: similar experience on this watch through. I think every time I remember the show, I just think of the high points. And I remember maybe some of the small like build up to those points, but like it's more like certain s- sequences and uh, scenes jump out in my memory. And uh practically this is my I think third or fourth viewing of the whole season. And uh, it still jumps out to me, the small. Stuff I miss as well as just the. uh, Just how enjoy enjoyable the whole experience is. Like like maybe there's one rough part at the very start, but that's only because I've seen it probably the most. That episode the most. But then like episodes like this, it's just like, oh, yeah, there's so much great things. In the episode, and there's some stuff I think I forget exists until I watch it, and then I think to myself, like, how did I forget this? This is so good.
0: Yeah, I, I think that that's a major uh, that's a major point of allurement for me with the series is I love being able to come back to it because each time I watch it, there's something new that I. Discover or rediscover uh, anything like that and it opens up the It opens up a lot of the rewards that are kind of sprinkled throughout the show that kind of go unnoticed during the first watch through and (laughs) like so many different lines from uh, like for instance with Ben's character in this episode I I Don't think I, I remember him saying certain things but when I catch them it it just makes me appreciate, uh, you know, his character, uh, a few other people's uh, little little moments of uh, digs that they share with one another. Uh, for instance, with a hawk, there is a point where they're all walking in the forest, and then he tells Cooper, "Hey, watch your step, city boy." <laughs> and it it really builds upon the camaraderie of the show and the sense of community. That is so essential to this series. And it's it's crazy to me that this is only, you know, the the sixth episode and all together, including the pilot, where we are still feeling the ripples of Laura's death. And it hasn't even been a week yet, I I wanna say. And the The first standout point of this episode is that it opens on just this glorious shot of a sort of like an amber moon that's kind of a it's lightly covered up by by clouds a a little bit and the time is around like two in between two to four a.m. and it, it, the reason why I love that so much is because we are given sort of like a glimpse into the fading into the fading of nighttime back into daytime. But we have the main character Cooper awake, you know, woken up to the sound of, of just this cacophony of like cheering and like celebration from uh, some foreign visitors at the Great Northern. And it's kind of like waking up and having just a dream that hangs over you like a dark cloud for the rest of the day. We sort of see this this uh, effect you know play out with Cooper and especially with the way that he's uh not nearly as chipper this time around and it weighs on him and you could tell that he's not on top of his a game even though he is still as sharp as a razor we just sort of get a little bit of the cracks that are starting to show beneath the facade that he has. Oh yeah,
1: and that's very apparent in how uh, short he cuts it with Audrey. She goes to uh, while Cooper's having breakfast, he's getting the usual coffee, and he says, "Spilling his, he's 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 doing some back and forth with the waitress, which is endearing." But then when Audrey comes over, he's pretty quick to pretty quick to shut down her investigation or her sharing how her investigation's going. And he immediately stands up and then, uh, there is some great back and forth towards the end. With the last time I checked, Wednesday was a, a school day. I Oh no, it was, yeah, when I was your age, Wednesday was a school day. And then she does the, I can't believe you're my age once. He says, I got the pictures to prove it. And then he says, see you later, and leaves. <laughs> it's a great little moment. But yeah, he kind of leaves her hanging and that's why she says the little bye as he's gone.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, just a great little scene to illustrate that. Yeah, he's uh, he's he's under the he's under the ice. I think the Icelandic. He's under mm-hmm. the Icelandic curse from their cherry songs at 3 a.m. that morning.
0: And I love how he sort of laments to the waitress that it's going to take a few days for their uh for their inner circadian rhythms to get back on track with their sense of time. And he's. You can tell he's definitely not looking forward to the next few days. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we see who is the person who brought upon this celebration. It's no other than uh, Jerry Horn. He's getting the Ghostwood real estate business back on track. Uh, you know, because business always has to be moving forward between the Horn brothers. And. It's it's sort of funny the dynamic that they have in the following scene where Jerry Jerry is clearly the more um affable of the two and he's largely responsible for getting them back uh from the time that Audrey sort of scared them all off with a uh, you know letting them know about Laura's death and Ben sort of losing his cool a little bit not too much but he is sort of angry with his brother in is in this scene and it's it's really funny just to see like their dynamic of how their how he's angry with him and how Jerry sort of gives him that leg of lamb tells him like how he can go about roasting it and Ben is just sort of all business this time around and wanting to stick to his guns you know keeping it all moving forward and Tells Jerry to blow off some steam with uh, the business prospectors at uh, One Eyed Jack's.
1: Yeah, that's when the tone shifts. He's like, you know, slow it down, Jerry. Cool it off. Uh, get some rest. I don't care if you're in love with that six foot tall lady. <laughs> but also, if we need to, and then, yeah, he does the little hand signal. And when he's doing that, he's, he's he's stepping into the Jerry more affable fun persona. So yeah, it's a it's a natural exchange of like if they're just like that, if they're heads if they're butting heads constantly, you think like, oh, realistically this relationship wouldn't work, or there'd be a, something to come in the middle, but no, just how quick they're on the same page. It's like, oh yeah, no wonder they're uh, brothers and business partners, literally.
0: And the next moment we see Leland come in and immediately Ben becomes annoyed again. And (laughs) it's like just as things were starting to smooth over, yet another uh, thing gets tossed into the mix that can potentially create disastrous results. And. It sort of reminds me of this uh, little bit of dialogue that uh, Cooper had with Diane as he was recording on the tape recorder, that whenever you leave home, your your percentage of having things remain in your control drops out nearly 100% of the time. And we sort of see that playing out throughout this episode. And even the book that was placed on his nightstand, once he picks up the uh, tape recorder, Great Expectations, like it sort of plays along with that theme of, you know, having, expecting like an I, an ideal world where everything sort of plays into your favor and, you know, watching it just sort of turn to ash before you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely see Leland starting to become even more frayed at the edges with this episode.
1: That's every, every time I rewatch the show, I'm always taken aback by Leland's character and performance. He the actor is amazing. He he's up there for the whole show's cast. He's he's easily top 2, I would say even.
0: I definitely agree with you. I find Leland to be so magnetic as a character and his presence is just so commanding even in a lot more of the restrained times that he has on screen. He just exudes this aura of brokenness and fragility, while also manicness and rage and repression and just, it's like a bubbling volcano ready to blow up like Vesuvius
1: And yeah, we see him collapsing again Cause he's, he's clearly not ready to return to work or help He's
0: He's not even dressed for it it's sort of a, it reminds me of, like, times where you become more, I mean, I've, I've definitely had, like, moments where I've become so stir-crazy, like, in my own place, where, you know, whether it's, like, due to something that's happened, like, whether, whether I'm sad or, like, a hard event has happened, and I just want to get out of the house and, like, distract myself, um, and clearly this is the, a similar case for Leland, but times you know, a a thousand times over Mm -hmm. because he's still lamenting his, his daughter's death. And he's definitely coming. He's trying to come to grips with it, but is so desperate to suppress this realization that she is gone indefinitely. And he is just wanting to come back to work. And, you know, even even in some of the prior episodes where he just wants to dance, and you know, <laughs> just not have to deal with this emotional realization of just grief and everything taking place, and it's and it's causing his family, like what's left of his family, to just uh, to just unravel entirely to where it's no longer salvageable. And I I feel like that's the scene where Leland comes in. It's you know yet again showing it's showcasing like this overcast cloud that's hanging over Twin Peaks at the moment uh in a figurative way where everyone is still like you could see the the moments of chipperness between like characters and stuff but it just feels like there's just a looming presence especially with the ravens that that are seen throughout this episode along with the with the talk of owls watching you know, being ever-present and keeping like the watchful eye on the town. it This episode feels much more paranoid and schizophrenic to me than a lot of the previous ones that we've seen so far. And then, uh, of course, we transition over to Jacques' apartment. In the previous episode, we saw uh, the police department, you know, breaking into Jacques' apartment only to see Bobby running and running off into the woods before anyone could catch him and before anyone could even notice him. However, they did find a bloody shirt and in this scene, we happen to find that the blood on the shirt belongs to... Is it—is it Jacques' blood? Yeah, it was Jacques' blood on Leo Johnson's shirt. Because
1: the uh, blood type does not match. Flores. Mm-hmm. Another great moment where Cooper just knows that when he hears it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, oh, it was Jock's blood on Leo's shirt.
0: One, uh, <laughs> one thing that I noticed too is, uh, you know, with you know, we were talking about like with Cooper being—I mean, I'm—I feel like he's off his game this episode. However, when he gets the coffee and donut from Andy, he's sort of a uh, is rejuvenated, almost like a getting like a potion or like a health, like a health bar <laughs> back in his. Back in himself.
1: Oh yeah, and the yeah, uh, I like the uh, that's like the first thing he asks for when he arrives, <laughs> and then uh, Sheriff Truman does like motions for each thing. he's he like a, a circle symbol for donut, <laughs> and then Cooper asks, and I also need a coffee. And then he does like a drinking motion to Andy instead of just telling him. It's like part of the yeah, like it builds like a. It reminds me like, is this
0: bunk hut? Is this bunkhouse boy? talk or is this oh, yeah. Bookhouse boy Bookhouse boy talk you know it definitely feels like an offshoot of it for sure like you could tell that they just have that much uh that much of a bond with one another to be able to just point out like a non-verbal sign and to just pick up on exactly what they're trying to hint at without drawing too much attention to it because clearly uh truman is still on his game you know, he's just sort of along. You could tell that he's kind of in in the passenger seat. However, he's still very much alert and paying attention to everything that comes their way. Um, but he's trying his best to be the the best form of support that could uh, help Cooper in his uh, investigation. And sure enough, Cooper finds you know. <laughs> I have no idea how he even picks this up, but he spots the Flesh World magazine. Uh, it looks like above, like a doorway or something like that, and Kruman just immediately like helps him up to pick him, up, to pick it up. And obviously, uh, in this, they find a zip code as well as a PO box with uh, sort of like a, a unique way of uh, sending out anonymous ads to people. And then having those sent back to Flesh World to create sort of a, an untraceable uh, route while still, you know, getting the ads out there for people to see. And yeah. then, of course, we see a Leo Johnson's truck in one of the ads. and It's like all signs point to him.
1: He's clearly involved in the uh, drug running, at least Laura was wrapped up in. Yeah. And there's a nice dissolve <laughs> from... Uh, is it from the World truck? A little photo in the magazine. Mm-hmm. We have a match dissolve to, I think, Leland's truck or not Leland. Leo's truck, if I'm correct.
0: Mm
1: hmm. I love that little move.
0: Like, oh, it is. Yep. And then they have a Andy follow up, you know, trying to see if they can track down Leo at his place. And then that's where we see Shelly and Bobby sort of doing their thing once more.
1: Young love. Confident, boisterous. They have a gun. (laughs) Her hair's wet and
0: down. And you you pointed out uh, before we were recording that like, there's like a, there's two little funny moments in this scene where Bobby's talking, talking up his game with the gun. You know, he thinks he's a very powerful person, you know, wanting to threaten Leo as he, you know, comes in. But then all of a sudden, there's a knock at the door, and he sort of like jumps in his, in his chair a little.
1: <laughs> yeah. If he was, if it was Carrie and Shelly, he would have dropped her. <laughs> he shoots up with the gun. He's like, I'm getting out of here.
0: <laughs> and then he sort of plays it cool again up until right after Andy leaves, there's a phone call. And then who is it? Leo Johnson.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty funny. He stops touching her when he hears Leo's on the phone. <laughs> He is brave enough to hang around. I'll give him that.
0: Mm. And it's sort of like a nice juxtaposition between this scene and the following one, where there's Ed and Norma. We sort of see the a younger love, uh, a much more, I guess, reckless, reckless and, you know, full of itself, a bit a bit of an arrogant love between the two, forming, or it's probably been there a while, but. It feels much more like a Bonnie and Clyde type dynamic, whereas with Ed and Norma, it's, you know, two star-crossed lovers who, you know, it's not in the cards for them at this time, where they're sort of having to come to grips with the reality of, you know, uh, Hank coming back and Nadine having her own set of problems, you know, because if anything were to happen between the two of them, between Ed and Norma, it would create a massive rift with many consequences that could potentially lead to ed being killed and who knows maybe even norma by nadine yeah. or at least
1: or, or hank he's in yeah. he's getting out of jail he's killed some he's killed a vagrant allegedly there
0: was there was like a nice like i i really enjoyed this i really enjoyed uh, norma's screen time in this episode because it gave her so much more depth and that she's She's always having to play the person who plays who who takes the high ground, in uh in her life, and she's sort of lamenting, you know, this course that she's taken, because although that although she has the moral high ground in a lot of situations, she doesn't really have anything to show for it in terms of happiness and attaining things that she's always wanted. Uh, she says something along the lines of, "We never take what we want, Ed." And, you know, you end up getting to the end of your life and you have, you know, nothing to show for it. And she tells her that she'll always love him and that they just have to part ways for now.
1: Very bittersweet. And like you said, I, I, I love the framing on, I think specifically Norma. This, this is very, the cinematography wise, this is very, this is a up there episode.
0: Yes, you know, I I definitely agree. There's I mean, don't get me wrong. A lot of the cinematography in the show so far has been top tier, but this episode really stood out to me compared to a lot of the previous ones that we've seen so far.
1: And I think I think it's like this intro where uh, Ed's working on a car, you hear a car pull up, you don't see the car. And this could be explained even with like maybe budget limitations or, scre- or or time availability. But like the shot of Ed, like working on the car and he looks up and then it's like kind of a wide of Norma, like mid smile, like goofy smile. But she's hidden by the log truck from the road and also the gas pump. Like She's she's very secretive about coming out here. Well, not very secretive, but like, you know, it communicates that little yeah, it's just like such a, such an amazing intro shot to a character arriving at a scene that has like an endearing nature. Where I'm looking at it now and I'm like, oh, yeah, this is just great.
0: <laughs> and the it really
1: communicates a lot.
0: I love the end point of that entire sequence, too. You know, like what you were saying, where we first see her in that wide and then they go past the logging truck and then they land right at the it's like this weird uh framing of one of the trucks one of the logging trucks but it's sort of like tipped upwards so that way we could see like an x beam
1: i think it's like the tow trucks like the crane on the back in the bed Mm -hmm. because we do see from another angle the side of that x Mm. bar and there's the hook and the the thing that attaches to like the axle and it's Mm -hmm. like It's positioned in front of Ed like he's on the hook. It's a great. Yeah, such a great little. Yeah, it communicates so well. Like, yeah, like they're they're at the. They walk into the cross section of the back of the. tow trucks. I don't know the exact term, but crane. And then she leaves and he looks at her leaving and then he's yeah. Visually, like almost like hooked at the cheek.
0: I love when cinematography plays with depth. Um because I feel like that's, I mean, it's something that you can obviously do in photography as well, but with the spatial and sequential movement of figures playing along with what's in the background and the foreground, it creates so much more distance, or it, 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 it lends to that dynamic of building up distance between the viewer and, and obviously the subjects, and just seeing them in that little, you know, behind that tow truck, It prevents us from getting what we want. You know, these are the two that I'm sure a lot of people are, like, rooting for. I know I certainly am, and I I feel like you are too, Pat. And, um, And it's like, we don't get to get that. We are denied that satisfaction of having them, you know, ride off into the sunset with one another. And, oh gosh, it's just so bittersweet. And, yeah, you... Yeah, Pat, like what you were saying how it ends with Ed and he's on the hook. Ah, oh, that's such that's such a brilliant such a brilliant moment and then it just fades to black. It, that could be its own like little <laughs> short film in a way. Like I love when sequences play out like that on screen. And it's sort of a uh, I don't think that there could have been a better way to end that that scene other than the fade out and obviously when we open back up this is the first time that we see Horns Department Store, and seeing this for the first time, I I didn't remember what this place looked like up until you know watching this uh, again, and this is a very stark difference from a lot of the buildings, a lot of the homes, and just a lot of the other structures that we've seen in Twin Peaks so far. This is a clearly a much more uh, Urban area with you know high rises, and we see like fire escapes and multiple story buildings. And it, it it looks much more uh scaled down, but in a strange way. Like I was I was sort of expecting like a, a sprawled out like a supermarket type thing. But it's kind of in like a high rise, but just the sign of it is so small and I don't know, it creates, like, such a unique dynamic of, like, seeing this place compared to, like, everything else in the in the town so far. Yeah,
1: and there's even, like, uh, parking meters, which I wouldn't expect. Yeah, and, and fire escapes. Like, what? This is Twin Peaks. It shouldn't be here.
0: Yeah, it, it sort of reminds me of um, the area in Old Roseville in the Sacramento area that, that we hang out, I mean, that we're a part of. Um it has like that kind of vibe to this area and it really enhances the overall uh map and geography of the town. And then, you know, this, this whole area is to like showcase, you know, Audrey's, you know, continued investigation into her father's business to aid Cooper. We see how she sort of finagles her way into working the perfume counter. She knows how to... She knows how to le- use leverage to get what she wants. And then,
1: yeah, they uh, we're trying to give her a nice relaxed. Like almost like God, I wish I was a. Don't you wish you were the child of a rich person?
0: <laughs> Just... Life would be so much easier. Yeah. <laughs> At least financially speaking. <laughs> uh, yeah. You would have much more time, most likely.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'd be doing the investigation which also goes yeah. to show Audrey's probably a better character than myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd definitely be corrupted. But yeah, she she is when she needs to, she'll she'll dip into that side of her. And, you know, th- threaten to call her dad. And yeah, she just she she locks down the perfume counter job pretty easily.
0: I'm just going to gloss over the next part with Donna and James, because to me, well, <laughs> <laughs> you are
1: they're thrilled you're not you know no yeah this is uh, oh no great. i have
0: been i've been dying to see what happens next with their storyline and by that i mean to me this is the weakest uh plot line in the series so far is with James Donna and Maddie it, it feels like uh i mean but it, it's it's not to say that it doesn't serve a purpose because obviously it does if anything it just gives me uh, invitation to love vibes, which you know, obviously is the continued parallel storyline that's going on with the soap opera playing out on screen. Um, but yeah, I uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> I, I I agree that it, especially at the start, it seems like they were they were a lot more important. Mm-hmm. Like with the introduction of Maddie, it kind of shifted the dynamic or I don't it felt like at the start they're very important and I had the feeling like they're going to they're going to definitely play some role in solving Laura's murder or saving the day or they're going to be they're definitely going to be involved there's something mm-hmm. about you know their their connection to Laura that's going to bind them to the resolution of it and then they're their love blooming in that setting. It's like, okay, this is interesting, but by like episode three or four, it's kinda like okay, what are we doing here? And not what we're doing here, but like they get they they become less important narratively. And then when they introduce Maddie, it feels like they're they're mixing up that formula a little bit of like now there's a love triangle possibility. Mm Mm-hmm. Because she literally is Laura, but with black hair, and James is, was already taken aback by it, and yeah, so it's like, oh, now we're now we're in the relationship drama instead of like the relationship and the drama of Laura's death.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it sort of um, creates a tiered investigation. I mean, because so far to me, it seems like there's three ongoing inve- investigations into everything that builds or that leads right back to laura it's obviously the investigation that's going on with uh cooper and the police department and then audrey's own investigation and then the the lowest the lowest form of investigation which feels much more casual but secretive to me or kind of like a hush hush type thing with james and donna and maddie now um it's like it goes from like professional to you know actually having resources and doing a lot of the legwork with Audrey and then just a the very suburban you know mystery which which reminds me a lot of a uh, blue velvet um in in that regard and you know I will say uh one of the st- probably the redeeming factor of Maddie's character to me is the introduction of doppelgangers of a duality and sort of like yin and yangs and you know it it just goes hand in hand with a lot of the exploration of uh of eastern ideologies that are kind of integrated and you know very integral to the show especially with cooper's form of investigation and mysticism and everything like that um so i yeah i gotta say that i I will give I will cut them some slack in that regard. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah, you hit and also yeah, you hit the nail on the head with the doppelganger thing. Of like, oh yeah, I forgot about that completely. It's so refreshing in this '90s piece of media to see something uh, more out of the norm be touched mm-hmm. upon so powerfully in the whole series, as well as with Maddie as a character, like. There's something inherently off but endearing about her because of her literally being played by the same actress as Laura. And yeah, I, yeah, I did kind of gloss over that. But yeah, I do enjoy their stuff, but it's definitely on the downswing compared to the rest of the show and some of the other narratives It has like a low hump. That lasts for a while, if I remember correctly. Mm hmm. season two especially
0: (laughs) yeah that'll be fun (laughs) getting into that (laughs) but yeah the the uncanny it's starting to show the uncanny valley that is becoming more and more well known within the series like as we progress into it and into the you know as we descend more into the the depths of this of this you know kind of a Ethereal place hidden inside of uh, the United States at this period of time, you know of uh, of the decline of Americana, and you know I I think that that's what I feel like the the other side of the coin for this to me is the is the storyline or I guess the motif of Flesh World, Um, you know we see a lot of that in this episode and. I want to say during my initial watch through of this series I I did it took me a while to really catch on to the purpose of flesh world of being present in the show but to me I feel like this does a far better job of showing that underbelly that is you know hyper present inside of this town as well as all of the neighboring ones in the in the upper northwest and especially, you know, we get like some really great close-ups on a lot of the ads. And it shows just like some of the the, uh, <laughs> the phrases as well as a lot of the word choice that people put into like these ads. And especially with the photos too. Um, and I love the way that Cooper handles, you know, like viewing these articles. Um, because to him, he's just so fascinated by you know, any sort of new piece of information that he gets with Twin Peaks because, you know, he's once again, he's a complete outsider. And there's this one frame that I'm on right now where Hooper has the the tiny little magnifying glass out and he Mm kind of has like a smirk on his face, whereas Truman, it's kind of like a realization that, you know, this is a part of the town that he is serving to protect, you know, with all his might. And, it just shows that he might be in over his head.
1: Yeah, and I love the uh, the use the 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 decision to call it Flesh World as a, as a Verhoeven or Videodrome feeling name. Mm-hmm. Like something about Flesh World's uncanny, but it captures that '80s consumerism vibe of like, you know, shop shopping world, shopping mart world, but also it's literally flesh so it's gonna i don't know it just hits that it, hit, it hits that itch, it hits that feeling that's present in other 80s media mm-hmm. think of a uh, videodrome with the the line uh, "Death video drome, long live the new flesh It's like i don't i don't like, i don't fully understand what that means but that's a powerful scent
0: that's yeah that's, it's, a,
1: it's, that's a scary future we're hopping into with that phrase
0: I think the the scary thing about it is that it feels you know once again it feels very uncanny, because with that type of media and you know with in this instance with the with the word flesh world, it feels far more realistic than a lot of the things that we see you know for instance with like penthouse or like playboy which is like obviously uh, you know a representation of you know, what uh, flesh world is trying to you know convey in this instance. But it feels like it it touches the essence of what it is that is being conveyed to us as a viewer. And it sort of like hits a nerve in a way. And it it, it reminds me of a, you know, you've talked about it in like a lot of our previous episodes, you know, outside of Twin Peaks, uh, with the philosopher of Baudrillard. And Pat, do you does anything come up to you in regards to. Uh, a lot of the writings that Baudrillard does in relation to this, like in, in relation to this concept that we're like talking about. Uh,
1: I, think, I think the big takeaway I would have, maybe why I find the show so endearing. Is that it's offering it's offering a cryptic, uh, you know, metaphysical, mystical, real that's absent, especially in the 80s. Mm-hmm. like Baudrillard stuff on the hyper real and the simulation culture simulation society where it's it's there's 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 so many fake realities constantly bombarding us and our interactions with each other and everything and nature itself it's it's it, it feels like a co- not contradiction but it it's re- the show's so refreshing to see Cooper a cog in the FBI essentially but he's a deeply humanist spiritual person who goes to a remote and what he was conveys is like a old an old reality, an old world, an old America in Twin Peaks. But he's not completely blinded by it. He's a little blinded by it, but he's not completely blinded by it because he's still on the investigation. You solve the murder, so he's aware that there's like you know the twin the town of Twin Peaks is a hyper reality. It's not, it's not literally what it is. It's a representation of what it is. There's something under it. Cooper's there to solve the murder of a girl who's connected to the thing under it,
0: mm. and then the
1: show goes even further with like it 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 goes so many places with that concept of the reality under the simulation of Twin Peaks of town. The town of America, of <laughs> our daily lives, and it goes to a deeper spiritual place, which it's like a good way to counter the uh, the doom aspect of Baudrillard's philosophy of like all the all the grim stuff he talks about because we live in simulations and hyper realities. That it means uh a lot of grim stuff this shows alter this show offers a grim alternative that is very dark at certain points but also very beautiful mm-hmm. it's, yeah it's it's it i think it's it's not explicitly connected more like the matrix and other media is explicitly collect, connected to the philosophy but you definitely argue for a long time about how powerful it is in embracing the antithesis to bargeard's resolve uh sit back and watch the apocalypse mm-hmm. perspective i um saying, yeah yeah i keep rambling <laughs> yeah sorry
0: oh no sorry um i i just said or i was just gonna say that um i wanted to touch upon something that you said where uh one of the alluring factors for you is you see you know cooper being this cog in the fbi machine but he sort of like stumbles upon this hidden world of like a of a forgotten era or a soon-to-be-forgotten era, it uh, reminded me of this video that I watched this week uh, by a YouTuber by the name uh, Oli Sun Via. That's O L I S U N V I A, and it was a video on uh, what makes Gen Z humor so interesting. And it sort of a, uh, or uh, she sort of takes this uh, this uh, this point or. She frames it in a way where uh, the difference between a lot of older humor, you know, in, in this instance, like with with millennials and Gen Z, uh, compared to like Gen X and Boomers and stuff like that. Uh, but it mainly takes it centers itself on uh, millennial humor as well as Gen Z humor and the differences of that, and it it frames it as a irony playing like a huge part in both generations' humor because as, as a form of a coping it's a coping mechanism uh, in regards to all of the terrible events that you know each generation has had to live through that isn't to say that every other one hasn't had their fair shirt though uh but it's sort of focusing on these two because with uh millennials they sort of had a you know i i should say we <laughs> uh we our generation has had a glimpse into what the world could be, you know, a, a better time that existed, you know, pre 9 11, pre 2008 financial collapse, pre, you know, everything else that has been going on since, uh, pre uh, hyper ecological and environmental collapse. Whereas with the Gen Z, you know, they've, they've, this is all they've ever known. You know, it's basically, you know, us having a glimpse of heaven versus their generation being born in hell and, having, you know, that's the only thing they've ever known. So it reminds me of uh, Cooper, you know, being given this glimpse into how, you know, America used to be, uh, you know, with this form of Americana, of um, nostalgia in a way, and he's sort of like existing inside of this bubble that is uh, absent of outside influences, although it has its fair share of evil that exists within it. However to me the dynamic that cooper brings to it is he has this sort of um this belief that since he is an outsider since he has been trained you know you know in the in the finest of all of these uh uh, curriculum that he could get in the fbi that he can he can get to the root of this investigation and then he can you know Purchase a property in Twin Peaks and exist in this bubble until evermore. And... I'm really drawn to that because, you know, every other character that we've seen, you know, for instance with Albert. You could tell that he is just being driven into the ground. um, By his lot in life. You know, he's... I believe he, he lives in... He's a part of the Pennsylvania unit and FBI, I want to say um but it's a stark difference between the two because here you have this bubbling personality who views themselves as as capable as being the savior that twin peaks needs of having this like christ-like complex and to me it's very interesting to watch this play out to see how it will uh turn out for this specific character but uh (laughs) after that rambling (laughs) um uh, going back to the scene where um, Cooper, say, we, found a,
1: we found a creative way to not talk about James and Shelly's
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. We definitely right.
1: did. <laughs> well yeah, I'm just a joke. We're we're back. There's more donuts arriving.
0: Yeah, there's more donuts arriving. Uh, there's more um, green time given to. Uh, Cooper and Truman figuring out, you know, getting the lead on where this PO box is, who it belongs to, and then boom, we get, uh, we see Cooper honing in on the red curtains from his dream, and he clearly says, you know, this is Laura, even though we don't see her face, Um, and then he raises the magnifying glass, and then boom, we get this incredible three shot Mm. of Cooper... Truman, and Hawk all looking into the magnifying glass at a hung up shot of a cabin with red curtains.
1: And yeah, this is this this shot is literally every time I I forget this shot exists until I watch the episode it's in. And I'm always like, oh damn. That's the that's a powerful shot. They spent a lot of time setting that up.
0: And it comes out of nowhere too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's that's I mean to me that's the reason why it stands out so much because everything else is kind of you know it's it's been the usual uh cinematography that we see in this series it's very um unobtrusive uh getting all, only you know it seems very bare bones and getting you know as much environment as they could while also honing in on the main subjects whereas this one it clearly shows This this nails down the camaraderie to me. It it shows them all on an equal level playing field that they're all in it together and they're all focusing on one point, which is solving the investigation. No egos are in the way. Uh, It's just it's just a beautiful culmination. Seeing it on screen and the payoff is so rewarding. Yeah, it
1: communicates so much visually. Like you mentioned, the, the, the level, the, our heroes looking to the horizon, looking to the, and they're all equals, they're, they're, they're a team, they're all facing the da- same goal, same direction. And then uh, another thing is, it removes any doubt you have of like, oh, maybe it's a coincidence. It's just red drapes an old photo of a cabin, and red drapes on an ad that maybe be Laura. But yeah, with that shot, it's like, oh no, that's, that's the place. It removes all doubt from the viewer immediately <laughs> and yeah it's just a great way to yeah so you don't sit there and think oh maybe it's a, maybe they're on a false lead or, you know a dead a dead a dead end it's like oh no that's it they're going they're, they're going to go there and they're going to find something and it gets you hooked or intrigued to see that play
0: out and pat i'm i'm sorry but <laughs> we're gonna have to talk about james donna and maddie <laughs> no <laughs>
1: Oh, Hank's there. Hank's there.
0: Yeah, Hank's there. We could talk about Hank in the double R diner. (laughs) Look
1: look at that fit my man
0: Hank's wearing. Oh, man, and I wish I had that head of hair so badly. (laughs) Oh, Hank's? Yeah. And he, I mean, to me, this is like top tier. I mean, you you talked about it a bit in uh, the last episode where we first see him, but he is like Top tier 80s, you know, fading into the early 90s, uh, epitome of what an individual in this era would look like in terms of like outfit and like just looks. Mm-hmm. Like, like, like. Even even though it's just the the back of him, I can already see that shirt is tucked in to some uh, light wash denim. Probably has some uh, brown boots on. <laughs> a nice little belt to tie it all together. Oh yeah.
1: Sleeves rolled up a little bit just to the elbows.
0: <laughs> Although I'm yeah. not gonna lie, Maddie's outfit and this It's also really good. Yes. Yeah, it's 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 really great. James is slacking. I had
1: that shirt in sixth grade. <laughs> and Donna's or, yeah, Donna's is good too.
0: I, I will say that uh the way that James casually just like just dismisses Donna the second that Maddie comes in is is pretty it's pretty brilliant in terms of like just showing how this love triangle is developing uh you know she's like oh hey, can I get you anything and oh yeah can I get it like a coke and then he's like immediately off no hesitation <laughs> he's off to play the hero to accommodate her
1: yeah he stands up doesn't he mm-hmm I'd be pissed if I was Donna <laughs> I don't know if we're talking about this later.
0: <laughs> but yeah, they, they go on about like how their investigation, how they're asking, you know, bringing Maddie into the fold. And then we see that. Uh, who else is it other than Hank? Mm-hmm. And uh, here I'm rewinding it real quick <laughs> just to see the reveal of his outfit. Of course, there's a leather jacket off to the side.
1: oh um, Draped on the
0: seat. Yes. <laughs> yep. And yep, those are some light jeans. <laughs> My man's got them tucked in. He's got the multiple rings.
1: I guess normas ring. And then mm-hmm. he's he's holding the little keychain.
0: Oh, the yeah, dom- the domino. Yeah. And I I another thing that I want to touch on is Hanks theme. Is it it stands out to me so much and a lot more of the uh the songs that capture the underbelly of Twin Peaks. It's like this lone guitar, and it just has like these very dissonant notes that just stir up malevolence. Mm -hmm. And it just really nails the atmosphere and tone of his character that he brings to this otherwise warm establishment. It's sort of like an epicenter of all the locals. And it creates like a very, a very, uh dissonant effect on Norma and Shelly's arrival, you know, after they went out and got the hair and makeup done, you know, they had like some bonding time and then immediately Hank grabs Norma by the arm and sort of twirls her back and immediately kills the scene or it kills the vibe between the two. Yeah, I, I love, I
1: love, uh, Shelly's acting. The look, the look, how fast her look changes when, you know, Norma stopped by Hank.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and she has like a you know just a more somber look going back and forth between them and then she touches Norma on the shoulder as she leaves to go you know set up
0: and I I love the framing on both Hank and Norma in this um, with Hank it's it's definitely down at his eye level and he's hunched over trying to play this this broken puppy of a character you know of uh, you know being able to learn new tricks, being able to be reintegrated back into society as a productive member of being able to salvage the marriage that he uh, chose to dismiss in favor of crime. Whereas uh, with Norma, it's it's up higher, it's meeting her on the eye line. she sort of has like a canted angle, and she looks very hesitant in this specific shot of her. And oh man, it's just... I love the cinematography in this episode, Pat. <laughs> yeah. And then
1: and then the fucking Shelly. Is it a dolly zoom, maybe? Or is it just a natural zoom? Let
0: me see. Like, oh, her. yes, her yeah, it's kitchen. sort
1: of. Yeah,
0: it's sort of a looming. It's a looming threat that is enclosing her, you know, and it's like behind the, you know, in the kitchen.
1: Touching her heart, kind of her shirt. Anxiously Please. watching, and then the show, Invitation of Love. Just the slow zoom. Yeah, and then the Invitation of Love's on, there's the leather jacket bad boy beaten up on a character.
0: <laughs> and I love the zoom in on his character as he's laughing with his head tilting up in, like, a villainous way. Yeah. And it just like fades, fades out. Village.
1: Great, great cinematography. Great, it, it just elevates the whole... And then going back to the Maddie, Donna and James shot, like it's kind of, it's more by the books shot for a shot. Like the big move is, I think it's the tracking of Maddie as she comes in. So it's like when we go, but when we go to Norm and Hank, it's like there's so much cinematography at play where it feels like they're, you know, they're splitting their resources. And it feels like they're given some stuff a lot more time and energy. And mm-hmm. it shows narratively. It shows with like I feel especially on my recent watching of season three, I think last year, like uh Norma's shot up in my character list, turn ed. Like they were maybe just out of the top ten, but now they're like as a pair they're easily top five. And just it's great to see all the same. It's great to see the characters again, and I feel like some of these cinematography choices are uh, justifying my opinions. So therefore, they agree with me, and I'm right.
0: <laughs> and sort of like uh, continuing on that line of appreciation for sequences, I really found myself enjoying the following one where it's a family counseling uh it's sort of a um a consultation with uh dr jacoby we get to see a bit more of him and his day-to-day uh routine and he's sort of lounging around He, he reminds me of the cheshire cat in a way from alice in wonderland um he's sort of a comes off as like this nonchalant but there's a there's a hint of of uh, manipulation inside of him that sort of plays with his prey and toys with their you know toys with them to get them to open up and it is definitely proven right when he is able to crack open Bobby with one question but um I loved the a lot of the uh way that the initial consultation was captured where it's sort of going in between Major Briggs and his wife. It's just whipping back and forth between the two of them to create like this frenetic nature of how urgent they're trying to solve this this uh, discord within their family unit because this is clearly a nuclear family. Um, we have Major Briggs who is constantly, you know, Always trying to be the best that he can be. You could tell that he's had a a great deal of uh, struggle in his life to get to where he is now. And his wife, possibly even an equal amount. And they're just trying to figure out where they went wrong with their son. And Bobby's sort of like laying off to the side, you know. It's kind of funny because like you could tell that he... You know, for being as uh, destructive as he is, you can tell that he is still wanting to salvage uh whatever he has or whatever that he's lost uh you know what from wherever it started
1: yeah he's he's still at the therapy he was uh yeah if he was more of a bad boy he wouldn't be there even
0: mm-hmm.
1: i love the e-reference with the uh major briggs and his wife uh like the quick pans back and forth between them, as they like, they're so in sync, that I got like the, like you're, like you're Bobby in that situation. And that's, that's what it's like to be Bobby, and like how on the same page they are. I'm like, you know, did you do this, 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 and they just bounce back and forth on you? hmm I was like, yeah, it's like two on one. <laughs> it feels like. <laughs> so I could see why there's like an inherent, uh, rebellious nature in Bobby. They go against that because he probably feels like all his life it's been them two on the same page in unison and kids are always dumb and want dumb things. So they're probably going to go against him and overrule his stuff. Yeah, but he's still there. He's still there. And even if he's laid back and checked out. So is Dr. Jacoby who's laid back and checked out Mm -hmm. until he can get Bobby alone. And then he could probe the uh, the the Laura connection, the the trauma he has from her death, um, and other stuff that's happening in the town. Whereas his parents are more there just to like you know we want to we want to go back to being in a nuclear family. We want him to be ten years old again. And he's a happy kid. It's probably what they're trying to get out of the therapy
0: experience. Mm-hmm. And um, great scene. I I loved the the release, the emotional release that we get to witness alongside Jacoby that Bobby has finally. You know, we're like 6 episodes in and we finally see his tough demeanor crumble before our eyes. We find out that Laura was a was a major factor And him going down this destructive road that he's been on for who knows how many years. Uh, You know, we find out that she was the one who got him to start selling cocaine. That way she could take a cut of it and have access or have ready access to it. And there's so many, there's so much depth to a lot of the phrasing that he uses when describing his his grief you know he talks about how um, with Laura she viewed people as you know wanting to do their best but they were just evil and rotten at their very cores and that she was the worst of all and she viewed herself as uh, you know wanting to every time she did good she would get dragged back into hell and she wouldn't each time that she would try to reach up towards the light it would get harder and harder for her to get back to that because she would just get dragged right back down and she wanted to bring that out in other people too because she was suffering herself you know she wanted somebody to understand her struggle by having them go through it themselves, but we clearly see that Bobby was too pure, or too innocent, to, or maybe even too too faint of heart to uh, match Laura on that same level. Which is why she used him the way she did, and sort of pitied him in a way. And I just, I just love the catharsis that Bobby gets in this scene. Um, Bobby is is probably one of my favorite characters. Um, even even though when I initially watched it, I I hated his character. I couldn't stand seeing him on screen.
1: Yeah, this, yeah, he, he's he's very hateable at the start. But it's uh, this scene is like the first one where it's it's essential to not redeeming his character, but uh, flushing it out. Like, if he didn't have scenes like this and the other ones down the line, he'd be, he'd be stuck in, like, the kind of a wannabe bad boy mm-hmm. character when there's real, Leo, there's real Leos and Jocks and, uh, Hanks in the show, so he's kind of not as serious as them, so his character's gonna take a, a hit from that, but when they, you know, spill out more, like, oh, he, he He's like those characters, but he doesn't want to be. It's not in his nature. And he's like, he's breaking down and crying. It's like, oh, OK, I want to see. I want to see his redemption. I want to see something positive happen. Now I'm rooting for him and Shelley more.
0: Um,
1: yeah, it just helps. Yeah, it makes his character more empathetic, I believe.
0: I definitely Shit. agree. Yeah. And then we get a, an incredible crossfade. Oh yeah. From Bobby on the sofa, a little port side view shot of him. The shot of the raven flying off in the distance in slow motion with that incredible theme coming back. And it's just the mountains. It looks like it's about a gold you know, it's approaching golden hour dusk. Man, it is this the editing and everything about this episode. This is this is probably my favorite episode so far in the in the season. And then we get, uh, you know, the Raven. I, I'm trying to still figure out the dichotomy between the Ravens and the Owls uh, of Twin Peaks. It, it seems like the Ravens are far more benevolent than the Owls are. I think I always I was think of the Poe. I'm so poisoned.
1: I <laughs> <laughs> I think of a raven and when I see a raven I'm like oh it's like that story
0: I don't yeah. know why it like I I definitely I definitely get that vibe too but to, to me like I I always view ravens as good omens uh like whenever I see one like whether I'm like out camping somewhere or if I just see one as I'm going about my day <laughs> I, I always take them as a, as a very good omen because they, they're so unlike every other animal that you typically see because they're highly intelligent. They, they're like these giant... like I mean sometimes you could see like giant crows and you know they watch you and they pay attention to your movements and they like pick up on your habits and you could even befriend them and... I don't know. I just there's something about crows that I just genuinely love. If if I could have a pet crow, or a pet raven, you know, I would be first in line to do so. And yeah, nothing can get big too, so you gotta be ready.
1: <laughs> <Do> you have the <laughs>
0: space for a raven? Nah, I, it would be like uh, one of those uh, uh, purely. Um, equal friendships of like I'm gonna go off do my thing, you go off do your thing. we'll meet together whenever time uh, whenever our paths cross again that sort of yeah. thing.
1: A little raven food outside if he shows up he shows up.
0: Mm-hmm. Then we see a, a dude, I will go down saying that this is easily my favorite outfit that Cooper has in the entire series uh with the black turtleneck the brown sweater and the blue fbi jacket the black mm. pants and gloves it is just such a look
1: <laughs> yeah I like i like the field field operation cooper
0: and then they stumble upon a, a cabin in the woods and then what do we see it is the log lady's cabin
1: She's ready for him, like they're, they're, they're sneaking up with their guns drawn and she turns the corner on him first.
0: And of course she's speaking in um, such figurative language, oh, yeah. with like hidden meanings and everything. And the second that they go into the place, she asks them if they want tea and sugar, and then you could tell that uh, Cooper, you know, still feeling the effects of the of the rough night that he had, is wanting to strictly get down to business. Uh, however he's cut off by Hawk, who is somehow a kindred spirit with the Log Lady. Yes, and I love their bond that they have. Yeah.
1: I like that he call he has her name. He knows her name. She's kind of introduced, like, oh, we call her the Log Lady. But Hawk's like, oh hey Margaret. <laughs> and yeah, he's like, no, no, you'll see Coop. And then yeah, this is the small. Small details and then her crypticness. Like when Cooper reaches for the tea and she stops him. And it's like a shot of Hawk smiling at like him being scolded. Because, yeah, you feel like they have the connection, like he knows, too. It's like, ah, oh, Cooper, you reach for the tea too early. Mm-hmm. Classic. <laughs> Classic if, if Margaret.
0: It feels very esoteric in a way as well. Like to me, this Uh, Margaret's home feels like a safe haven in the town of Twin Peaks I mean she obviously says like uh, we'll be safe from the owls in here or from their watchful eyes or something like that and even when they all sit down at the table it feels like they're getting ready to have Margaret look into sort of like a crystal ball and like let them know what the what fate has in store you know with some form of prescience in a way she very much feels like an oracle to me.
1: I like how down everyone is for it. Mm-hmm. Hawk's ready. I think when Coop is asked by the log lady, she speaks in uh, cryptic messages, it feels like. Especially in relation to fire. She brings out the log and she's "Okay, you can ask now. There's a great shot of a... Harry with his hat, like on the on a pole behind him. And just looking at Cooper like, right, like, go on. Are you going to ask her? Are you going to ask the log? Like, it's like a. It's not fully skeptical, but he's like. I don't know, it's it's a great shot. There's a wagon wheel in the background. <laughs> so many great uh, communications. And I love how rich the art design is for her house it's like a library there's so many bookshelves behind her
0: yeah we get uh many details the that recount the night of laura's murder or the final moments leading up to her death we find out that there were two men obviously a uh, Jacques and leo and then two women laura and ronette and they were all in a cabin together however there was a third man and it's sort of a it adds yet another ingredient to the mix of the investigation that's currently, you know, f- unfolding before our eyes. And then it it allows for, like, a short break um, for them, you know, on this uh, journey that they've been on, you know, in the, in the rough part of uh, the forest. And then they stumble upon a second cabin. It's like a lot of false leads. However... We get a nice little playback to the earlier shot of uh, Cooper, Truman, and Hawk, but this time Mm. with Doc Hayward as they see the the photo come to life. And then just this beautiful, extreme close-up of a raven eye as it zooms out, which to me only solidifies the notion of Raven's Serving some as, like, some form of guardian or some form of um token or totem that shows them the way. Yeah, the owls are at night, ravens in
1: the day. The ravens are watching our hero's progress.
0: And then right. we hear the lovely Julie Cruz, who is very, her music is very much ingrained in Twin Peaks. We hear her, uh, one of her songs playing out on a broken record player in Jacques' apartment. Great shot, great transition, great setup, great music, great everything.
1: Feels, it adds a, it adds a weight this whole scene, and them finding the cabin.
0: Yep, and it's like finally we get more pieces to the puzzle. Uh, we get a break. Uh, we find Waldo, <laughs> finally. Uh, And then there's a camera with film inside of it. And then we find the twine that was alluded to by Albert, as well as blood on the ground. As well as Cooper, I believe. In the uh, last episode. Mm.
1: I think when they're at the veterinarian. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Cooper grabs from one of the shelves or a stand somewhere. uh, The same roll of twine, but it's in a sealed package.
0: Mm. oh yeah Andy finds it and then he he gives it to him or something like that
1: yeah he hands it to Coop and uh, I think that's when Coop you know says to Harry confidently like oh we're gonna find Walter we're gonna find uh, the bird's owner on these records say like, this is the place
0: and then uh, the Truman goes up to the Cuckoo Clock and then out pours many tokens of from One-Eyed Jacks and I I, <laughs> I can't I can't, uh, say enough about the cinematography, because, like, that shot where Coop picks up the broken one-eyed jack token against the red, uh, drapes, (sighs) that is top tier to me. And the lighting and everything, like, I can only wish as a filmmaker to, like, capture images like that, where it just feels so ingrained with the story and just elevates it to a whole other level of immersion No, yeah, it's, it's an album cover <laughs> it's a cut goddamn... <laughs> <laughs> yes so couldn't have said the, it better myself
1: <laughs> the every frame of painting philosophy
0: mm-hmm. and, then, and then we get a bit of a dichotomy of uh, you know this hidden uh, kind of like on the fringes of uh, Twin Peaks you know, where all these darker things take place On the opposite side of that, we go back to the Great Northern and see this very vibrant community event and celebration uh, where it's drawing in the people of Twin Peaks and sort of um, allowing them a chance to get to know uh, the people who are visiting. Yes, we see Major Briggs hanging out with all the Icelandic people we see Jerry trying to win over Heba, his love interest, with uh, some food and some uh, sweet words. Yeah, she's not quite tall.
1: I want her to be like another half foot taller than him.
0: And we see this very sweet exchange, or the sweet glance from uh, sort of the greeter of the event when Leland arrives. It feels very bittersweet to see such a broken individual in a very happy place like this. You know, you could tell that he's longing for some sense of community, some sorts of some sort of meaning and connection.
1: Yeah, that's such yeah, that great shot of <laughs> the very shallow focus as he's looking around anxiously. He's entering the happy festivities.
0: And I love uh, the moment that happens between Catherine and Ben, where he's trying, you know, <laughs> he's like uh, playing up himself uh, in front of uh, these businessmen, and then all of a sudden Catherine comes over and just spills the champagne on his on his very expensive looking shoe. And then he just sort of looks down, taps his foot in, a bit, in it a bit, stops talking, just looks over, smiles to everyone, and excuses himself. I love seeing moments like that play out in movies cuz it's like I'm always curious how how would I handle like that sort of thing in you know in my own life and it's cool to like witness it on screen uh, cuz I was like okay Ben's going to blow up or or maybe or maybe he'll like really handle the situation well and then he just handles it like a pro <laughs>
1: Adds to the fluidity of the character to make him more real. That he's not just, you know, because when you put yourself in that situation, you like, oh, like, oh, you may burst out or maybe uh, an, a moment of outrage, but this one's, uh, you know, he's more contemplative, he's more calm, which like fleshes out his character. And then, like, oh no, he's, he's aware of like, you know, he's he's trying to be a businessman, he's trying to sell the town to these people. And he's like, oh, just excuse me, guys. He's like, yeah, he's he's not he's not easily read. Or not easily. Like, yeah, you can't. You can't just give him the you can't do something like that and get a rise out of him, which means he's in more he's in more control of his emotions, which means he's more, less predictable or more more of a threat compared to like a generic TV villain. Be like, oh, you know, this week, he's going to do this It's the feeling I get it. And I do enjoy the small detail, like the tap in his toe. He, he, he takes the slight whimsically even. He's like, oh, OK, <laughs> He just,
0: you know, embraces it. And then he, he says this brilliant line to Catherine in the in his room where we see Audrey inside the uh, hidden walls. Uh, Sort of peering in, he says something uh, like, The next thing I know, you're polishing my shoes with Dom Perignon. (laughs) And it's just, I I love the small little witticisms that Ben has. Uh, You could tell that he has a very unique sense of humor. And a way of, like, digging in at people. Yeah, it's like the older brother energy. And then we sort of... Yeah, exactly. And then uh, we sort of see like a a faux invitation to love scene play out where, you know, it's obscured by this hole in the wall. <clears throat> it creates like an iris around uh, Catherine and Ben as Catherine confronts Ben about uh, finding the one-eyed jack token and throws it in his face. And then he grips her and kisses her as like a fire is burning in the background. And they like overtake themselves on his desk and talking about like burning the mill and like all this stuff. And it's just a, such a perfect soap opera moment where it feels far more, it feels hyper real uh, compared to Invitation of Love. You know, it's like art imitating life, but life imitating art. But in this time it's art imitating art. And <laughs> and But then it easily gets cut off when, um, you know, they're kissing and then he comes up sort of like breaks away from Catherine immediately pulls out some tic tacs and says would you care for a breath man? <laughs> and then we just hear her slapping him off screen <laughs> again <laughs> yeah I
1: Awkward's mean, like laughing and shutting the door or we're like she's with us in the
0: audience at that moment and we go back to the warmth of the event oh, yeah. where uh, Jerry's you know Serving as like the host of this event, as the Ghostwood merger, and you know he's trying to be very affable, speaking in their native tongue. And then all of a sudden we see this very... This is probably one of my favorite frames of Leland, where he's obscured by some people, there's some streamers in the background, and you could just see him just on the verge of tears. Just this very broken individual. He has like a hint of like toilet paper on his face, covering up some uh, shaving. Yeah. Uh, some, uh, you know, where he cut himself. He just feels like such an outsider. He feels like a ghost to me in this scene.
1: Great, amazing shot, amazing performance.
0: He's. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those are tears in his eyes. It's
0: great. And then all of a sudden the music kicks in. And then he's immediately overtaken by this primal urge to just lose... Or, like I said, he feels like Vesuvius going off right now. And it, and then when it cuts to that wide shot, we see like his looming shadow on the wooden floor. And then just all this space around him where nobody wants to be around him. And then starts dancing and dancing, and we see Ben becoming (laughs) about to lose his cool again. And I, I, this, this moment let me, it it made me identify with Catherine a bit more um, because, you know, even though she's told by Ben to go and dance with him, it's very sweet of her to actually try and alleviate this, you know, fit that he has. And you could see, like, the look on her face, she's kind of, like, saddened, and she has a bit of compassion for him. Uh, She's, yeah, she's... she's annoyed, but she's like, oh, damn it. And she's a phenomenal dancer, too.
1: (laughs) No, yeah. No, yeah, then... She does lose it when she starts mocking, or not mocking, but she starts, because she's on the mission to make it look like it's a dance. Mm-hmm. When, like Leland's like gripping his head or his eyes or temples, in like agony emotionally, and then mm-hmm. she starts doing it too. Like, oh, it's it's a dance, everyone. We're having fun, and then and everyone, everyone yeah, yeah, everyone joins in and does it too a little bit, and yeah, like yeah, yeah, everyone's they're like celebrating his in a way. They're celebrating him turned being turned into that ghost. And his outbursts in it. Even though they're not aware of it. Ben is. And so is Catherine. That's why you get the great shot of Audrey crying as everyone's, you know, dancing merrily around this broken man and
0: imitating his motions. This is probably one of my favorite Audrey moments thus far. Because you could just see that. I mean, because so far in the show, she's kind of alluded to her relationship with Laura a little bit. You know although she wasn't one of her greatest friends she identifies with her on a spiritual level of being this outsider um you know having this very cushy life uh being given everything they want and sort of being placed on a pedestal in a way but you know she sees she saw the good in laura with how she identified with her brother johnny and you know all the other endeavors that she had in the community and then when she sees the community sort of consuming Leland as this ghost for their own amusement it it sort of breaks the the illusion that she has of pursuing this investigation to achieve some sort of higher meaning when you know, it just causes her to come face to face with the grief of of her own sentiments towards Laura and this broken man. Oh yeah. You know, she she appears very childlike, almost like a, a situation of like a child, you know, peering down the stairs as their parents fight, oh yeah, you know, fearing the worst.
1: I'm sure there's the father connection she's she's spying on her father's infidelities and corruption and the connections possibly to the murder of Laura and then she's seeing the the father of the murdered girl so distraught <laughs> like like his 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 daughter's absence has ruined him he's and then now they're making a mockery of him like yeah it must be too much to bear <laughs> I
0: was like oh Jesus this <laughs> is and even her father like not because this is supposed to be like her father's like closest you know business partner it's his like lawyer and like oh god just to see like your own parent just cast off their like one of their closest friends like that and just feed them to the wolves must be heartbreaking (laughs) great scene and i found this the ending of this uh or sort of like the final moments of this episode, you know, where Maddie finds the, the tape inside of Laura's uh what oh, is yeah. it like bedpost?
1: Yeah, she used to hide stuff in there.
0: Mm-hmm. It's a fun. Like
1: I, I love the. It's it's like a speed run. To, wait, here's more hooks. Here's here's more things to get you hooked to the next episode.
0: Yes, exactly. That yeah, I could. Yeah, you, you hit the nail right on the head, Pat.
1: I, I found the tape in her bedpost. As yeah, it's like the no one's found, the cops missed it. It must have some important information on it. We'll, we'll
0: see you guys tomorrow. Bring a tape recorder so we can listen to it. Yeah, and then it immediately hands off the baton to Ben to the moment between Ben and Josie, where he, you know, lets her know about the hidden compartment in Catherine's drawer. They find the fake ledger. I, I'm assuming that, uh, you know, they're both in on burning down the, the sawmill mm-hmm. and how they have like a, their own relationship with each other to Josie's uh, detriment. Yeah, and, and then it speed runs right back into into Shelley and Leo. Actually, yeah, it feels like a whirlwind, right?
1: Leo comes home, he's getting the stuff ready to burn the mill. Hank assaults him, catches him off guard, so Hank's in on it. Then, yeah, it reestablishes Hank as above Leo. In the underbelly. So there's yeah, there's since we've been watching the show, Laura's been horribly murdered by an unknown killer. We find two of the possible leads, but then we learn there's a third man. And then we also learn that Hank who couldn't have possibly been involved in the murder is also out on the loose so there's a yeah we've we've doubled our potential bad guy total now hangs up to something and yeah he comes in bleeding at the mouth and bruised yelling at shelly throws her to the ground shelly's had enough she pulls out the small little pearl handled gun She's she's making her stands. Leo calls her bluff. And she shoots. (laughs) We don't know what she hits either, but she shoots. And we just hear a yelp. Yeah, screams of pain. The the building shaking, practically. The chandelier swaying. Scary stuff.
0: And then yet another amazing crossfade into the ever present or the ever flowing i should say balls at the great northern and cooper cooper in his fit walking down the hall getting frustrated once more by the <laughs> by the celebration <laughs> nice. and i loved the shot of him uh going into his hotel room just
1: the, the silhouette
0: Yes, it's it's amazing. It reminds me of Silence of the Lambs in a way, of Starling going into the depths of Buffalo Bill's place, and then what it do does- we see? Oh. Naked Audrey in bed. Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, yeah. I was- I, I'm I'm glad it's not enticing, even if she meant for it to be, because the somber music comes in. And as well as she's emotionally distraught. It's kind of like, why are you naked? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It, it, I get that's what you think you're supposed to do, maybe. If, like, so he doesn't kick you out or like whatever. But come on, it's Cooper. <laughs> he's not
0: going to do it. <laughs> no, no. It's, yeah. It, it feels even more and even more... uh strange to me because Audrey feels like a child who's, you know, wanting to crawl back into the arms of like a a guardian or like a, like a person who, uh, embodies safety. And I guess that, you know, that can be linked up with what you're saying about, you know, the reason why she is like, she is the way she is, is, you know, she's very raw and very vulnerable right now and doesn't want to be left alone or anything like that but it's very uh turbulent and uh ambivalent as well
1: <laughs> I was saying, but yeah but then yeah but then going back to the intro interaction and up between them in this episode you No, know, he was kind of short and standoff not standoff short and curt courteous it mm-hmm. makes logical sense that she's like oh yeah i'll, I'll be naked he can't say no You know, that's what she she, that's not what's going to happen. That's not what either of them want in the situation. She's still taking the precaution. Mm -hmm. Of like, you know, he's. he won't kick me out. He can't. I'm naked. (laughs) And yeah, but I I think the music is what saves it. Like Mm -hmm. if you switch the audio track to. Another song, it it makes the scene a lot darker. So. I'm very happy with the music choice and it yeah, it feels it feels like it ties the whole scene together of like there's a hook there, but the hook isn't uh anything gross. There's no like did they did they sleep together Because I don't think it's present. I think it's more like, okay, how are they gonna resolve how's the relationship gonna develop from this moment? not in a, not in a physical manner, but like, you know, it's yeah. At least that's my interpretation.
0: Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> I think that that's a yeah, those are some great closing thoughts on it and to what to what would be considered one of Cooper's uh, longest days. <laughs>
1: I, I forget this episode again was just a single day.
0: It starts at around, like, 4.30, ends at probably around, like, 2 a.m. Yeah. Yeah, it was a fantastic episode. Oh, yes. Uh, Did you have any other thoughts on this episode, Pat? Uh,
1: Yes, real quick. The uh, silhouette shot of Cooper entering his room before he turns on the lights at the end. It does the thing. I love... I've become aware of this. I forgot what movie we watched. I think it was the Batman. Or I watched the Batman movie, that new Batman. And mm-hmm. there's certain scenes where they're like, oh, we're in the dark. Like It's pitch black, but they're doing the thing where they're lighting for the audience to see. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, I, I am. If you're going to the if you're going to a scene that's pitch black, embrace the pitch blackness like Lynch does here. Of like. You know, his silhouette is like, just, it's a pure black silhouette. The room is pure black, the only light's coming from the hallway. So it's like, as the audience, you're like, oh, it's, it's dark as hell. Like, the tensions raised because you can't see anything. So the character definitely can't see anything or modern movies when they light for pitch blackness, you do have to have something visually to communicate. But like some of them do it like way too much where it's like you can clearly I don't know. It's just I have an appreciation for that. Like I love that there's no there's, you don't see Coop's face at all. Like they could have done like a soft light or a very, you know, like like a moonlight coming through a window or anything to give some light so you can place Cooper more or see his face because he's he's a celebrity and a star or stuff like movies do. But like no, it's like, no, you just see his gun, and the outline of his head. And yeah, I just have it. I haven't wanted to say, like, I love that they do that. I love that. Again, to
0: the cinematography, like, that's the right choice. Yep. Elevates the scene. I definitely share that exact same sentiment with a lot of filmmaking and yeah, I it's it's like what you said. If you're gonna show darkness, show show darkness. Don't like light it, you know. Don't show like fake moonlight or like this blue color that simulates nighttime. It's it's not realistic. It, it breaks the illusion in a way. Um, but that that's I mean that's obviously like our own personal taste uh, showing through. But to me, I I. I try to do that in like my own stuff too, like my own shorts and it just makes it so much more rich. Like it adds like so much more dynamic range uh, in, in the palette of lighting um, and it makes it far more realistic. If you made it this far, thank you for following us on this journey into the town of Twin Peaks. We have about uh, how many episodes, probably two more episodes left of the season. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we'll probably be taking a break for a bit, or we head back into season two, probably do some other stuff uh, along the way, along with our normal episodes of movies and even a different series along the way. But if you want to keep following us to see what you know get any updates or anything, you could do so by going to our Instagram page, giving us a follow. Uh, our Instagram handle is LayfilmPodcast. Podcast. If you want to write into us, you can do so at Lafilmpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you could give us a rating on uh, iTunes, you can follow us on Spotify, whatever you want. Um, I know that it would be cool to hear from some of our listeners if you want to write into us, so feel free to do that if you want. Um, otherwise, thanks for joining us, and we'll see you on the next one.
1: And there's always music in the air, Waldo. There's film in here.